Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring imaginal cognition. My guest is Alan Steinfeld, who is host and producer of New Realities on New York City Cable and New Realities on his YouTube channel. He has produced two feature-length documentary films on UFOs and is a board member of the Friends of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He is author of the anthology Making Contact, Preparing for the New Realities of Extraterrestrial Existence, and Careers in Alternative Medicine. Alan is located in the New York City area, and this is his second interview on New Thinking Aloud. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Alan. It's a pleasure to have you back with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Thank you, Emmy. I have to say this moment we took before we started and you closed your eyes, I felt as if um, you brought me into a space. So thank you for your emanation of consciousness because I felt you. Oh, well, thank you, Alan. Yeah, yeah. Where did that bring you into space? Well, I felt you and I felt coming into your space of quietness. And that's some of what I think we can talk about today, how Mm, thoughts are things. Consciousness is a field. Um, it's transmittable. It's, it's becoming more and more obvious in science and just spiritual terms that consciousness, whatever that is on many levels, needs to be examined as an application. You know, when I interviewed Deepak Chopra, which I've done 20 times every time he has a new book, he says, Oh, would you like to interview me? I say, sure. And so anyway, um, it's not just consciousness, yes, is the ground of all being, but it's something we can use and work with and understand and develop. It's coming online as a tool, but it's also everything else. So, of course, when words come into a kind of cultural um, collective, it's it evolves its search for meaning and, and it's still something that's finding its place, that word, that framing. And so right now it's vague and, and, um, means so many different things, which is great because many people need to understand there's aspects of consciousness. If it is the ground of all being, which I and you maybe and Jeff probably think it is. <laughs> so that's a good kind of beginning. Initially, you had suggested having this conversation to explore really what is the mechanism of remote viewing, non-local consciousness, and you and I have heard many different theories, and you wanted to explore really, you know, how does that work? Right, exactly. So I've been teaching remote viewing for the last three or four years after learning it from Russell Targ about 20 years ago. And I want to know what's happening. I and mean, even telepathy, I know you're intuitive. So how do we receive sense information beyond our five senses? How do we pick that up? Where's that coming from? And, 
and I talked to the best remote viewers. Um, I talked to Russell Targ. He, he didn't have, for me, an adequate explanation. He's a fantastic human being. He's great. He's probably as advanced as anyone. I had a, a chance to have lunch with Ingo Swan once, but we didn't really talk about that. I think we talked about astrology. And I also taught and had a really in-depth interview with Hal Putoff. I said, and Hal said to me in the interview, he went into SRI every day and saying, this is impossible. It's impossible for you, someone to get information that's not here, not local. And every day he'd come and be surprised by what happened at SRI. So, so I started to understand, well, what's going on? How are we able, there's re, and Paul Smith, I talked to recently at Contact in the Desert. I asked, well, Paul, how does it work? How, what's really going on? And, and there's no denying that we can perceive non-locally. You talked about, um, um, peer review experiments. Well, we've had 40 years of peer review application. It's, it's a fact. Humans, have the facility to perceive targets or thoughts or situations, past, present, and future, here, there, and everywhere with enough practice and intention. I don't think there's a dispute among people who've studied this. But what, how is that, how are we perceiving that? It's not through the five senses, which mainstream science says that's all there is to know. And what I say to mainstream science is, Let's say your computer, uh, and let's say you didn't know about the internet and you thought all the information on your computer had to be programmed into your computer by something in some hardware. And, and I come along and say, you know what? I'm getting information that's not programmed onto my computer because I have a certain application that's open to receive non-local information. It's sort of like that. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Some people will even say that there isn't non-local consciousness, that consciousness is everywhere. It is everywhere. And it's also when I'm receiving internet, it's localized through my computer from a non-local source. Because then anyone on the internet can pretty much, if they're getting to the website or wherever they're going, can access that non-local information locally. So yes, the receiver is local and consciousness, like many people are saying, maybe is not contained in the brain, but is received by the brain. Right. And that is a theory of the, how the brain functions, that it's a reducing valve for information from wherever it comes from. Right. So I want to see where, if the, if the brain is sort of like a radio that's receiving a signal or some from somewhere, where's the antenna? Where is that mechanism? Like, so yes, if you open up the radio, you're not going to find an announcer in there or the, or, or the Beatles playing their <laughs> eternal hits or something like that. But it's being received. And if you were, you know, someone who was not aware, of technology, you would think, oh, there must be something in, if you have that primitive perspective, like a lot of Western scientists do, you must think that consciousness is coming from the brain and it's not receiving it. So I say, this is just my theory and maybe other people, that 
this mechanism, and of course, we'll talk about the whole body as a receiver of consciousness, of course, but what we're talking about is, and maybe that's also old-fashioned, the brain is receiving the thought form realities from some other realm or non-locally. So, um, but of course, you also mentioned that every cell in our body is receiving, you know, a field. So the brain, I feel, there's the brain, the mind, and consciousness, right? The brain is the hardware. The mind is sort of the software. And consciousness, what is consciousness? It's the operator. If you have the hardware and software, the computer just sits there. What you need is the operator. And the operator is consciousness. Otherwise, you just have computers sitting there doing nothing. But so the application or the use of that takes the conscious being, the conscious interaction with the hardware and software. So taking that to the next level, what is receiving that? How is that working? What is the application of receiving non-local consciousness? And we're really in the early stages, like even the work of Dean Radin, who's so brilliant, talking about what consciousness is and his, his book, was it, what's it called? Supernatural? Super, super normal. Yes, super normal. We're seeing that human beings, even your work as an intuitive, we're so much more than we've been told by the mainstream, by education, by religion, by um, media. The, uh, you know, we've been dumbed down to think that uh, in a Western science model, which is, it's, it's so great what Jeffrey Mishlev has done is really presented information that goes beyond an old paradigm of who we are as human beings. And we can tap into this infinite field that, that we just have to apply this, this intention. So I try to understand how, how is it that when I do remote viewing, I'm able to see, perceive, something that's non-local someone says they have a target or someone's in this location immediately most of the time i get an image i put my intention on something on a target or even a, 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 a you know little crv code and something comes it's something and it comes easier i'm sure you know if you're out of the way right yeah when we are when we are less connected to um trying to receive the information or striving or connected to to thoughts or emotions that might be blurring dialing into that quote radio signal that can be a barrier but you're right when we get out of our own way which is really i would say coming into um well in buddhism it's sometimes referred to as reality which is which is what you know, in, in yoga, the eighth limb of samadhi, which is really that, that union with really unity consciousness, or some might say the union with the divine of, of kind of, of dialing into the information that we can access when we focus. You know, you mentioned Dean Radin, and I know in his information that he's put forth that he talks about in his, from his book, Real Magic, when he studied how people are able to be really good manifestors, if you will, in life, or, you know, create something that they want to create is that that intention, attention, so that focus, and then also the feeling, 
of that desire of what you want can assist in that regard. Have you found that in your yeah experiences and and remote viewing? Absolutely, it's it, not just remote view, viewing, but the um, ca capacity to manifest. Yeah, I think is what you're talking about. So you have an image of something you want to create, and if you focus on that image and also then let it go, you know, if you keep holding it, then it just, but if you can incorporate it, and I think even in the words of Jesus or somewhere in the Bible, it said, feel as if it has already happened, you know. So if you keep, if you want something, if you focus on the want, all you're going to get is want. Now, I didn't realize that until I realized that's what I was doing. I wanted something and it's like, oh, but by focusing, and I think Einstein even says it, it's like physics, um, focus on having, then you put the having in the field because the field of intention, if you want to call it that, I think Joseph, uh, uh, what's his name? Joe Dispenza calls it uh, the quantum field and other people do too. If you put the feeling into the quantum field, it's malleable, right? So the intent and incorporating the having as if it is, I mean, it's what's behind that movie, The Secret. The secret is having and then having what you've had. But, you know, the feeling of it will generate the um, the actual manifestation of that. Well, I feel like we're talking about receiving information and then and then also creating what we want and i think that those you know those can go hand in hand so just staying with receiving information or consciousness it sounds like we are exploring you know how does that happen and so how do you think that happens alan well that's the question i've been trying to thank you for asking that because that's <laughs> been my search ever since I realized, not just for me, but thousands, and, and of course, there's people a lot better remote viewers than me, they've developed a facility. And everyone can remote view, of course, some people, everyone can play the piano, everyone can take a picture, it's just some people have a natural facility for that. So I found just in my own example, in my own case, it's like, okay, I'm getting an image that my intent um, is a target, and it feels like if you're not really subtly um, kind of just kind of pulling up the pulling apart the application of consciousness, it feels like you're making it up. So I tell people even te in, in teaching remote viewing, let the image come and know it's not your imagination because but it feels like, oh, no, th we're getting thoughts all day long. Some of them are remote viewing, some of them. Some of it's just fantasy, imagination, or creating, and it's hard to know the difference between that. But when you start to develop the facility for remote viewing, you'd start to distinguish, and this is the hardest part of remote viewing, what is your own stuff? You know, what Russell Targ said, what's the difference between the noise that's always going on in your head and the signal? And he says it's that, he's, and this was so key when I learned it, the unexpected ideas or images that come into your mind. So when things just pop in because you want to be as empty as possible, it pops in and you have to know it's not your imagination. And with enough practice, 
And this is like why feedback is so important within, you know, with psychics and remote viewing that, yeah, when you get the feedback, you can see, oh, I got this, but then I made an analytical overlay where I made an association immediately to say, oh, it must be this. So one theory is we have to be in right brain awareness, which is different than left brain awareness. Left brain is comprehension. Right brain is apprehension. So we're apprehending the target. As soon as you say, I know what it is, you're immediately wrong. Unless you're really a great remote viewer and you really train. So if you, the, the left brain doesn't know anything, it just thinks it does. That's my thing. So the idea is that the right brain is the intuitive, creative, and a lot of remote viewers um, uh, recommend a book called Drawing on the Right Side of Your Brain, which really develops the capacity for intuitive thoughts and feelings that are coming from nowhere. But just saying it's right brain uh, may localize it or identify it like uh, Stuart Hameroff says it's the microtubules or other people say it's part of the hypocalamus, hypocampus. But anyway, what's going on is that, so you think it's imaginary, right? I mean, because you're getting these images that come into our minds, but I say it's imaginal. I say it's actually a cognition. And, uh, and, and that's, so it's like we cognize things with our five senses and our intellect. But my theory is like, we're perceiving, I call it seeing the dark when I teach remote viewing because we're actually cognizing input of non-local sensing capacities of consciousness. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to understand what does that mean, the, the uh, uh, um, cognition, and I looked all over and I didn't find anything to really explain that until I came across the work of Henri Corbin, who was a translator of Middle Eastern texts and, and documents and I, I don't know why I was even reading this, but he, in one of his documents, said that when he's very advanced spiritual concepts of these, uh, particularly the Sufis, uh, Henri Corbin uh, said, the imaginal cognition, which is what I'm calling the application that remote viewing does in telepathy, um, is actually you're tapping into a whole other realm, something that's purely immaterial beyond the realm of the body and mind i mean the, the the logical mind so we when you're remote viewing uh some people say you're not actually going everywhere because if consciousness is non-local consciousness is everywhere and we're remote viewing everywhere all at once because that consciousness that we think is local is really tapped into all time and space so if we follow that understanding of imaginal, then I'll get back to then I'll get to some of the other work of Henri Corbin and how he discovered this translating these ancient um, spiritual texts. And he says, um, "I found it impossible to content myself with the word imaginary that these great masters were talking about, because imaginary equates to the unreal or a fantasy." And the reason I absolutely had to find another expression was that my profession as an interpreter of Arabic and Sufi and spiritual texts would have betrayed 
those texts if I simply use the word imaginary. So he basically created this word, maybe other people had called it something before, imaginal. And this imaginal capacity that every human being has in dreams, in visions, in telepathic messages, it, 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 it's a receiving by the brain. So he said, I called this imaginal cognition, which is tapping into a realm that that actually, he says, survives the body and mind. So when you're remote viewing, it's like, and this is how I understand it, you know, Plato talks about the ideal aspects of things, the platonic forms, whereas the, let's even say, the morphogenetic field of a thing that exists beyond the thing. When we're using imaginal cognition, we're remote viewing something in time and space but it's also something that exists in this imaginal realm beyond time and space. The object in time and space, this is my theory, and maybe someone agrees with it, it's a shadow of the imaginal realms. So when we're dreaming, we're more in the imaginal realms than this world. We're swimming through this, this other realm that's beyond the mind, the intellect, but we're, we're, we're accessing something that actually is a world. This is my feeling. So he also says, I'm just quoting Enrico Ben, it must be stressed that this world is perfectly real. And this, of course, is just his theory, but it seems to resonate with what I was looking for. How could I have cognition of something uh, that wasn't local? And people are doing it all the time, remote viewing. So it's just, it's just a name. It doesn't mean anything. Just names put a, are a placeholder for explanations. And this really made sense to me about understanding remote viewing. So he says this imaginal reality is irrefutable and more coherent than the empirical world perceived by our senses. Yet we don't know how to get to that. We, 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 we stumble upon it in remote viewing. So, um, you know, Corbin says, by developing our imaginal perceptions, we go beyond the intellectual mind and develop a new sense to directly perceive a super sensitive, sensible reality, a super sensible reality. And, and one more aspect is like, he, he's not really the first one to talk about this. I mean, he, he may have named it. But Rudolf Steiner says this, he called it the imaginative cognition. And, and Rudolf Steiner in the, in the 1920s and 30s, the only reason this realm of cognition remains unfamiliar is because we consider this form, all other forms other than our senses, five senses, impossible to cognize. But it is possible to develop another form of cognition that leads to the super sensible world. This is, this is Rudolf Steiner says it. And he may have been influenced by the Swedish mystic, uh, Swedenberg, who says that all progressions in the spiritual world are affected by changes in states of consciousness. He says, therefore, there's really no difference if you're near or far from picking up these vibrational energies, called it vibrational energy. One more reference, and then I'd love you to jump in, is, is um, Carl Jung. 
he says, um, he called it the act of imagination is a perception. So he calls the imaginal what uh, the act of imagination. Other people call it the, the, the imaginal, what did uh, Steiner call it there? Uh, no, he called it the imaginative cognition. I think the most uh, way of framing it is imaginal because it's imagined. It's not quite imagined. And it's not quite made up. It's perceived. And he's, but Jung says this can be accessed through re, through automatic writing, uh, artistic creation, dance, music. Probably if he was aware of channeling, he would do called channeling. So that, so, um, that sort of is my thesis of, of naming things. How that works is, is sort of a, um, extension of this. But does that make sense that I'm calling this realm? of consciousness that accesses the non-local field imaginal. And it's just a name. How does that relate then to our own consciousness? You're suggesting that this imaginal realm is something we can access when we get out of our own way with like thinking about what we're going to have for dinner or worrying about how we're going to pay a certain bill or wondering what we're going to do the following weekend. You're suggesting that we can drop into this at this aspect of our consciousness? Yeah, it is an as exactly, it is an aspect of consciousness. The stuff you're talking about, like what are you gonna have to dinner, who who should I call? This is that's the ego mind. That's that's left brain ego mind sense of individualized self. And that's one aspect of consciousness. The it's the local aspect. The imaginal is when you drop away from the self the small self and allow the vastness. And we talked about human potential um, uh, that we're coming into as a spiritual culture, things that thinking aloud has talked about for 40 years, this spiritualization of humanity, at least in the Western world. I mean, the indigenous has already had that and never lost it, but in the Western world, the, the um sense that spirit is a vital part of who we are and not reduced to biology you know uh, which some people do you know but uh, with richard dawkins it's all in your mind and, you know and my mother for that matter says dead is dead you know so that's her truth until it's not but you know I, we, I think if we've had a sense, even remote view, if you had a little out of body experience, if you even met a, a near death experience or have had that yourself, like, there's no doubt when I read Anita Morjani's book that this woman was the real thing. She, and, and other people too, and you know, my own out of body experiences and past life. I mean, so the incorporation of spirit of qualities, which means essentially that we're eternal. This other facility of, okay, if we're eternal, what's the cognitive faculty of this eternal sense of self? That's where I was really kind of, and it's a hypothesis. There's no way to prove this. We're just using words and name things, but there is work by, we mentioned Stuart Hameroff, that the microtubules may be the containers of consciousness, but even saying that, how do we define something that 
can't be put into a box. What is, what, if consciousness is non-local and we have a facility or an application, because people are into apps, to perceive that, at least that gives us a sense of our own immortal nature. You know, I think I'll write a book called How the CIA Discovered Divinity, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Because really, it's through the workings and the funding of the CIA that um, Stanford Research Institute was able to go so deep into the proof that that non-local awareness is absolutely a fact. I, I mean, there's only arguments about that if you haven't studied it. People will argue all the time, like, no, that's impossible until you do it yourself or see an infinite amount of experiments that have proven, you know, when when Ingo Swan remote viewed Jupiter and said, oh, you know, there's a ring around Jupiter. And they said, oh, you must be looking at Saturn. Ingo said, I've been looking, (laughs) I've been looking at the solar system my whole life. I know the difference between Saturn and Jupiter. Believe me, I see a ring around, you know. Maybe five or, I don't know, 10 years later, they discovered there was this ring around Jupiter. So, um, we have to trust and, and we have to use this application for our advantage. I mean, for, you know, so if I go out to a restaurant, I try a remote view. Okay. If I eat this food, how will my body feel? You know, later on. And, and sometimes I override it, like if I want ice cream or something like that. So, oh, it'll feel so good now. And I just <laughs> disconnect from the remote viewing. When do I want to feel good? Do I want to feel good now or later? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And it's always good to preserve. Yeah. I mean, it does feel great, but you know, so this has practical application. That's very true. <laughs> I just wanted to bring up in my search for understanding what exactly I was teaching people in remote viewing. I teach about every uh, few months on lightnet.org, Zinka Caro's um, kind of uh, understanding how to not just remote view, but do what the government is actually doing now, remote view with what's out there, their UFOs, other planets. Of course, there's no way to get feedback about that, but I think my theory about that is if enough people can remote view a target and get an agreement, like, okay, we all remote view this target I have, and everyone says, wow, that's the Eiffel Tower there, and or not even name it, but some image. If we can get an agreement about that, then let's remote view a place that we don't, we can't prove, and see if there's an agreement among that. Of course, I talked to Paul Smith about that, and he says, well, you might be getting a telepathic overlay. Like someone has a strong idea about something and um, everyone picks up on that telepathic overlay that's um, being projected there. So um, that might be true. That might be true. So um, anyway, it's just my search to understand what is the mechanism of the mind. How do you think this imaginal realm, imaginal cognition, connects with intuition? It's the same thing. It's it's really the same thing. It's your, Intuition is an aspect of that imaginal realm that's there. It's, it's, it, it's, it's like, um, what aspect of that facility are you using? You know, what, a, what part of 
of, let's say, Facebook are you using? Are you just looking up people's photos? Or are you looking up information? It's like, how are you using the app? So, and I think if you have intuition, if you have telepathy, it may not be the exact same thing as remote viewing. It's a slightly, but it's pretty much you've opened that door to the imaginal. So the imaginal includes all, to me, I don't know if Henri Corbin, if he was around, would still agree with that, but, um, he just has a new book out. Someone told me of something coming up that I definitely want to get a book about his work and how it's really, when I read that work of Henri Corbin, it really um, defined the nature of non-local reality. It's really, for me, the landscape of non-local reality. But what that doesn't do is still explain the physiological mechanisms of how that works. Where's the antenna? How, where... In our mind, and of course, you said maybe it's in every cell of our body, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's when I interviewed uh, Dr. Thomas Verney. He spent, I believe, seven years researching thousands, I think it was like 5,000 books and papers on consciousness and cellular uh, awareness and memory. And he basically came to the conclusion that consciousness is in every cell and every aspect, really, maybe even down to a holographic, you know, level infinitesimally yeah then it also then begs the question of how or why are we here you know how are we able to talk to each other we we eat food we drink we sleep but we're but we're getting energy from from somewhere right and then there's also what all the world's most of the wisdom and spiritual traditions talk about that everything is interconnected to prove that point that consciousness is in every cell, there's a book called The Heart's Code, where um, Purcell talks about a heart transplant. Yes. That was, you know about that, was given to, of a girl that was murdered into another young girl, and that young girl who got, who was the recipient from the donor, was killed, was able to identify the person who did that act to that. And... And also people who have liver transplants or even lung or heart, other heart, take on a persona or aspects of the persona of the donor. So there is something about, and something about lineage, and we can't escape our parents. Somehow we're, you know, we're the recipients of all those thought form realities that we're trying to undo and work through, but it's genetically passed down. That's why blood is such a powerful agent. Because it's, it is something of that is transmitted, I think, in the DNA, in the cells, in the, in the body, in the fluids that is of the essence of that spirit. So you say, how is it that we eat? And we, I think we're not a closed system. We're getting, you know, downloads energy that is beyond food. It's, it's maybe coming up from the earth itself. But we're being fed by an infinite source, which is our connection to spirit. And I think it's actually our connection to the imaginal realm is feeding us too. Because I find when I go to, if I'm tired and just get a little bit of sleep and start a sense of dreaming, I'm energized. So there's something about visiting that, what I'm calling the imaginal world. It's like part, an aspect of the dream world as well. Uh, and it may be 
deep into the territory of the imaginal, maybe when you're just remote viewing, you're slipping your toe in it, but when you're dreaming and you're consumed by that world, you're in the imaginal or an aspect of that. And I think they're real worlds. I mean, I think dreams might actually be more real than this world we think is real. And, you know, and that's also goes into what maybe there was an interface when the imaginal realms and maybe there's places on the earth which are more intersecting with this reality. Maybe that's how you explain dragons and fairies and elves and angels because, and vortex points that intersect to these realms that open up a little doorway to this other realm that is most likely real. But if you're really hardcore, you know, Western, you don't think anything beyond the five senses exists. And, and this is the huge transformation that allows thinking to perceive in, in uncharted ways. Going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, how is it that some people are more skilled at this? So you suggest that, of course, you mentioned some of the greatest, you know, well, well-known remote viewers on the planet at the moment. It seems that perhaps karma might play a role as far as what a person might be literally attuned to perceive. Well, that's one aspect of it, just like long fingers make a better piano player because maybe you also learned it in a past life how to play the piano or something. But what Gary Nolan and of Stanford University and Kit Green, who was, uh, a, I would say, a renegade investigator for the government, discovered that remote viewers actually have more developed parts of the hypothalamus they call the Phuket and the Kadoet. It's like these... Latin frames that that are white matter that are near the hypocon that seem to need more developed in remote viewers and experiences. They discovered, wow, this is an abnormality originally thought, but they discovered, well, these people don't exhibit abnormal behavior. They actually exhibit supernormal behavior, supernormal attributes. So the question that I don't think has been investigated, did that white matter expand, uh, was that genetically related or did that expand because they were actually ex developing that through remote viewing? Or is that a natural process that makes people naturally remote viewers? So those, so I think experiments could be done where you take someone who's never remote viewed and you develop that and, and do MRIs and see if that really affects the tissue or like experiencers. It's hard to know when something's a, an experiencer of UFOs, but it, it's definitely, and, and Whitley Strieber has talked about this too, that his, his areas of the brain were much more developed in that area because he's probably the one of the most, um, I would say, experienced experiencer that's not remembered but he is he's <laughs> one of the most he's one of the most lucid experiencers i've ever met and he's um so that would be something so maybe i'm thinking not so much the microtubules which of course may be in every cell which are in every cell that pick up the emanations of spirit so i think those microtubules are maybe what bruce lipton calls self-receptors 
self-receptors, maybe it's not exactly, he says that receives a signal of self. So when someone has uh, a heart, liver, lung transplant, the the um, the natural body reactions of these self-receptors push against that, but there's drugs they take that suppress the self-receptors. So maybe that's why the the aspects of the donor are put into the body. I think the self-receptors may be the antenna to spirit that allows us to incarnate, inform, and bring in this non-local consciousness to be embodied. That's just my theory. Well, I mean, we do seem to have an electromagnetic frequency. In fact, the heart also emits a larger electromagnetic frequency than the brain itself. So, and again, re referencing Dean Radin, there's been research that shows that the, the heart knows before the brain. And it's possible that there's many mechanisms at play here. And it's even possible that our, our cognition, you know, maybe we can do an experiment on this, Alan, of, of, uh, remote viewing the mechanism and bring a group in or something like that to explore it further. But maybe our consciousness, uh, needs to focus a little bit more on, on what these mechanisms are or just in our human form. It's just difficult to, to, to fully grasp because of, of various other reasons. No, I think that's really good. There's also um, something that James Hart, have you know Dr. James Hart? He worked a lot with alpha waves. Mm -hmm. And I, he, he says there's this alpha wave signature where people become more creative, more intelligent. So the, I'd like to do an experiment with remote viewers hooked up to these brain machines that when they get the target are certain brainwave signatures more available as opposed to when that person may be not getting a target. There's so much work in this area that can be done that um, uh, we're really at the beginning stages of understanding, mapping, consciousness. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite quotes about all this type about consciousness is uh, Eben Alexander referred to it. I think he got it from Edgar Casey, who says, everyone's concerned about how much of this consciousness survives the death of the body. But the real question is, how much that does that vast expanse of being and consciousness survive the birth of the body? Meaning that you have to pull that all into a limited space but I think the process of human evolution is ex is about the expansion of consciousness to include more and more of who we are. I mean, we've already explored how much our senses can be aware of, but what, you know, and we're taking in, what, a 100,000 bits of sensorial information every minute, but I think we're taking in more bits of imaginal information, if we call it that, that we've blocked out because we don't think that level of cognition is valid. So we might get a flash of, like, I think when my, my bookshelf fell down in my apartment, like, and it was away, someone came late and said, oh, guess what, your bookshelf. <laughs> but I, I sort of got a flash, oh, just for a moment of, like, something. Or we get flashes of things, but we ignore it because we've been taught to ignore it. I'm sure you, as an intuitive psychic, tell, tell, 
telepathic get flashes, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very so, much. So I think, you know, another one of my favorite quotes I've got who said is that that perhaps we're always in the imaginal world, but we, but, but our way, or in a sense, we're always dreaming, but our waking conscious makes such a loud noise, we hardly notice it. That's, so I think, you know, you ever notice how a dream doesn't ever really begin? Like, it's never once upon a time. You're in it. And that movie that was out a couple of years ago kind of displayed that where those people went into those dream worlds. Inception? Inception. That was the... So in that movie, Inception, you notice they enter a dream and they're already in the person's dream while that person's dreaming. And it's it's a fantastic film on some levels. It, I think it was really chopped up, that script, but some elements of it were really good. Because even in the dream of another, of another person that they enter, they enter deeper levels of other people's dream who are in the dream with that person. So there's like four or five levels deep into this imaginal realms that they're, they're interacting with. And it was, that part was really brilliant. I've never seen anything like that. So maybe there are levels and levels of this imaginal realm, like these Sufi masters go to. Maybe there's a place in the Himalayas where people are so masterful of the imaginal world, they're actually generating this world. You know, the yogis that are sitting in those caves. So, you know, this is such an exciting realm that, you know, for me, it goes beyond UFOs. It goes beyond all that because I do think these ETs are coming through these portals of perception into our waking reality. Yeah. And we don't know what to do with it. We have no education about this. So I think it's important that we do educate ourselves to what human consciousness is capable of. Perhaps we can experience everything everywhere all at once. At the same time, that could be very overwhelming. So, per, so perhaps we do have these, if you will, membranes of our bodies, of our cells, of our energy imprints. So that we can, as, as some suggest, we come here for a particular purpose, be able to, to continue with our own soul's development and not get overwhelmed. I wouldn't go into that fear aspect of being overwhelmed. I would say, I mean, I, I'm just, I know you, not, not about, but I would say we actually are everywhere all the time, all at once. We, that is, if you ever listen, look at that picture of Alex Gray Theologue, he's the, the, being is sitting in the field, the infinite field of creation. And that's where we are right now. We're that. We are that. We're not this, especially not on these little screens, but we're not even the person behind. We're the infinite field of creation itself pretending to be me and you and everyone watching. So yeah. we are that all the time. And I, I don't want to put a... Uh, 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 a way of stopping people from feeling their multidimensional selves. In a way, this is what, this is really the essence of this talk, the fact that we are multidimensional beings and the more we raise our vibration, the more awareness we have of the facilities of multidimensionality. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And at the same time, would you agree that if we were able to pick up all the information 
all the time that it could be difficult to to sift through. Or if we picked up all the information all the time, we might create go into the Buddha Christ Krishna consciousness that we ultimately are. I mean, not a bit, just that moment of living in the moment where there's no thought of the future or the past. It's moment to moment. I mean, of course, that's still limited as us as well. And yeah, but I think, you know, that goes to the question, do we retain a sense of self in this other non-local world, uh, which might be the soul essence, or do we just slip back into the ocean as a wave? Mm-hmm. And I think we do retain some sense of self, perhaps. Thanks for bringing up all these points, Emmy, because I think we have to, I don't think we have to be afraid of the fact that we're tapping into everywhere all the time, all at once. Oh, no, I don't have any fear about the oneness that we have. I was just suggesting that some propose that we experience a veil, that even Christian, Sin, excuse me, even Christian Sundberg suggests that he recalls pre-birth memories where he was fitted with this veil in order to focus on, on uh, his, life's journey. And I agree with you. We can, I think it's, we can access this information as well to be helpful. But I was just wondering what your thoughts were about that perhaps for you to be Alan Steinfeld. <laughs> I don't even know what that means right. <laughs> because I try to be infinite, but I do know what you're saying. But I think, um, I think we are infinite and it's not that we have to, we don't have to negate everything. I think we do come here for a reason, but it doesn't mean we can't know everything about everything. There is a particular focus and mission for us that, of course, transcends our personality. But, um, I don't think it's overwhelming. I think we don't, I think the veil is a cultural manipulation to keep us from truth. So I don't, agree with that whole concept of the veil or being stuck in the matrix. Yeah, we are stuck in the matrix because as Terrence McKenna said, culture is not your friend. It conditions you to think that the veil is okay, but it's not okay, Emmy. According to me. No, I... <laughs> so you don't have a veil or did you take your veil off, Alan? <laughs> no, I'm working through my veil uh, so we could become, so we know where... I mean, of course, we're born into a culture which places us within a limited field, but I think these, whatever you want to call it, fifth dimensional realities uh, that are coming to people, it's a little bit of letting going, uh, let go of the veil. I mean, Madame Blavatsky wrote the book, Isis Unveiled in the 1890s, because she knew this was a moment of unveiling of consciousness of the divine. And I don't think, I think the veil may not be the best word to use because it means that we're, we've intended a, a hiding of our own sense of knowledge. I say it's a progression, it's an evolution, it's an unveiling of possibilities of who we are, of our infinite nature. And of course, sure, if we really knew we were infinite, we wouldn't need to zoom. I would just show up there immediately or, you know, and that's, that's what that movie Lucy was all about. Like, oh yeah, the infinite, um, yeah, parts of that. Yeah. So anyway, I think it's all really good, but I think what we're really talking about is the human potential. What is human potential? 
and it's been so limited for so long that me and you and Jeffrey Mishlove are finding ways that can tap into the true nature, the true potential of the human being and see that the infinite aspects, when that leads us in our lives, it, I think it creates more happiness, more joy, more possibilities, more ways of learning and sharing with each other, uh, less drama. You know, I think it's, it brings us really to a level playing field where we're supposed to incarnate into so we can really share our gifts with the world. You know, I think we, we came into creation as creators and knowing the true nature of spirit incarnate allows like when we understand what consciousness and potential which we're still discovering really is it allows us to have more experiences of reality it allows us to to expand the possibilities of of the human field itself civilization bring everyone up to a place where they can recognize their own creative potential, which I call the flowering of humanity. We'll do another show about creative potential and the flowering of humanity. But does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that you're right. I think a lot of people aren't aware of their potentials. One other concept I'd like to explore with you is you mentioned that the imaginal realm is beyond senses. Now, I think that myself working as an intuitive, we can get information through the senses. I know you're talking about beyond the body as well. Um, so symbols are another way that we can get this information. What thoughts do you have about symbols and the imaginal realms? Well, I do love that question because it is so key and I really appreciate you saying it. So when I say it's beyond the senses, you're picking it up through the senses, but your senses are picking up something that's non-local, that's then stimulating it. Like, like um, uh, Rudolf Stein said, the super sensible aspect of feeling, super sensible. So your senses are picking up visions, but the visions are non-local or hearing or you're sensing. The imaginal world does speak to us in symbols. It does. Because it exists beyond phenomena. So the way we perceive the imaginal realm is through our overlay of our culture onto that imaginal world. The imaginal world, as I interpret it, is just the fluid essence of being of fluctuations in the quantum field, which you may call it. So what we're seeing is how we relate to that realm through our um, conditioned level of interpreting reality. So it's presented to us maybe from the realm itself, which might be super, super conscious, you know, it might be really, it might be because it is, it is consciousness unveiled in a sense, I think. So it presents itself to us as symbols. And you know what? Everything is a symbol. Even the world you're seeing, even the screen, it's a symbol to this super conscious mind that relates to its own emotionality in the form of symbol feeling essences. So yeah, symbols are the realm of the imaginal. Absolutely. I think that is such an important point. And, you know, there's some great sayings about, um, 
symbols being a representation of the thing we're unable to articulate. Mm-hmm. It suggests that, but it's 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 beyond. So the difference in some um, linguistics is the difference between signs and symbols. Sign is the thing, and a symbol represents something that's inevitable. Like you take a stop sign. You see a stop sign in the street. It's a sign. It means stop. But if you put that stop sign in a in a river of a polluted river and it's floating around, it takes on a symbol of stop. So it's not just a stop sign. Its symbolic nature can be understood, but it can't be articulated in a sense. It, it, it's just relayed through the symbolic essence. So the world around us is in all its forms symbolically impressing its presence on our being and we're interpreting it as such. I think that was the word that um, this famous symbolist uh, uh, Car- Ernst Carcier says. It's the, and, and, um, and who's the other? Goethe says it's the world as such. It's the, it's the ineffable as such. So you get a sense of symbols. So yeah, imaginal realm is totally a symbolic realm, but that's just, the symbol is the shadow of the world. This is my interpretation. The world itself is perceivable, but yet unknowable. In, in, in a kind of intellectual sense of the, and so the symbol can help bypass the intellect in a way. Yeah, well, the symbol does. The symbol talks directly to the source of consciousness, so it does bypass the intellect. And the intellect can take a symbol and say, "Oh, the symbol means this and this and this," but then you're making a symbol into a sign. I think symbols are not comprehended, but they're apprehended, so they can be known but not put into a box. A symbol, which is why emojis are a much better way of communicating than just words, because emojis have a multiplicity of meanings. In a way, it's it's a more sophisticated, like a way abstract art may seem more primitive, but it's actually a more sophisticated way of presenting because it has a multiplicity of meanings. So symbols have that aspect. And just like this imaginal realm I'm talking about, it's not any one thing. It's all things. But it's, it's, it's a, it's the essence of particular things. If you read, uh, Immanuel Kant, he talks about the noumena and the phenomena. So the phenomena is the stuff we see and the noumena is the ineffable essence behind the phenomena. So the UFO thing, we call it a phenomena, but what its real essence, my guess is that it's, it's, it's inexplicable on the level of consciousness we are right now functioning on. Mm-hmm. So remote viewing, all the things we've been talking about gets us into a doorway of other levels of perceiving and other applications of consciousness. Right. And I'm looking at you where you are and I can see, hear you talk. I can feel your spirit in your soul. I can feel your passion. I can feel your desire to help people understand that they're more than how they take themselves to be. And I also see the beautiful 
it looks like ivy or some type of vine behind you, foliage dancing in the sunlight behind you and seems to be a symbol of ever giving life and love and consciousness with the sunlight dancing behind you. Right. That's a symbol for you. And it might be that for me, but for someone else, the sunlight may be something that you want to get out of the, sh out of the sun into the shade. So symbols are self-inflicted, self-imposed. I mean, there's culturally, culturally unknown, but they, they are specific sometimes to cultures or individuals. But yeah, I know what you're saying. It is all that too, because that's your, awakening to what's interacting with what you know of that it could be a symbol of being hot and sweaty which i'm feeling right now it's, <laughs> it's lovely <laughs> no but it's lovely though but it's all it's not one thing it's in a way all things symbols can have things, many different meanings i do think you made a really good point that this other realm talks to us in that language beyond words and we interpret it within our cultural tradition our cultural predilection and i think you know as we come into a more multi-dimensional culture we will invent other realms of being other ways of being i just heard a discussion between rupert spira you know who rupert spira is um and uh donald hoffman donald hoffman someone you guys i, I didn't want to interview him too but a case against reality he says, time and space are illusions. So, um, they're only existing in, as a, a fabrication of the mind. And I think he was, he was searching for a place where consciousness lied, lay beyond time and space. And I just wanted to shout out to him on the interview that he was doing on, that it was the imaginal. That's where it is. That's my perception. So, you know, I have to say, I'm not an expert in this. I'm still trying to understand it. I'm still trying to understand what is the facility of remote viewing and are there these parts of our brain that are antennas of multidimensional input? Maybe the third eye is that maybe the pituitary gland is that where, you know, in many people it's a, a bud and then it, it, as it moons, as it opens, it it expands into seeing non-visible light and taking in intuition and all that. So there's many um, aspects that maybe the Hindu masters had discovered long time ago about who and what they were in the facilities of consciousness. And we're just beginning, at least we're beginning to suspicion it in the West. Well, I know for myself, when I drop into that state of being, which is what we're talking about here today of what you're describing as the imaginal realm or imaginal cognition. I often refer to it as intuition. I, I feel, I feel it's really synonymous is that I perceive it as no time zone. Yeah. Yeah. Because past, present and future do exist. It's just where you putting your intent. I mean, you could call it intuition, but I think when you, I think for me calling it a cognition, um, just makes more sense to me. We call it intuition. That's so vague. But when I say, for me, it may be not vague for you. When I call it a, a form of cognition, it, it makes sense to me. Would you say it's a way of knowing? 
our way of being. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we talked about Gnosis before this show, and definitely it is totally a way of knowing Gnosis. It's like it is when you intuit, when the thing about remote viewing, because it's so connected to what could be considered your imagination, and sometimes your imagination gets in the way of remote viewing, that um, it's not so, when you know when you know you've got a target. Yes, it's a gnosis. It's a knowing. It's a, and and then sometimes you're fishing for it and you have to let it come. But it's a development where you're developing gnostic awareness or gnosis. Yeah, and sometimes you just know. Like I tell people, this is not belief. This is not thinking. It says knowing without guessing. As I say, you know the difference between thinking and knowing? Do you know the difference? Well, I would say that one could be more of a mental process and one is, it just is, perhaps. Exactly. It just is. I say, do you think you're sitting there in that room with that nice painting behind you? Or do you know it? I know it. (laughs) Exactly. You know it. And so there's no arguing with knowing. I mean, believing is the lowest level of all. Believing means nothing. It, you, you can make believe. You make yourself believe. If you believe in something, you're make believing. This is my understanding. It's not about make believe. It's not, belief is conjecture, and there's no real substance behind belief. Yeah, you could believe this. You could believe that. It's like so what? Do you know it? When you know it, you you ground it into your being because you know it. There's no arguing with knowing. I can't argue with what you know to be true for you. That's just knowing. So there is a definitely when we know who we are, because we've had proof or just an everyday awareness, that does supersede all of that thinking, believing, um, contemplate, all that stuff. It's just knowing is the ultimate. You're absolutely right. Thank you for that. And so, yeah, yeah. When you have a telepathic, insight you know it right there's no question about Mm -hmm. it myself having worked with many people over the years and myself included when i'm getting information and when i feel that i have an intuitive impression i'm able to get feedback from my client or the person i'm working with or in my own life to get validation like you do in remote viewing and what i have found what i was taught by my teacher is that you want to be in a place of trust and when i've trusted that information and it was accurate and I got that feedback, what tends to happen and one of the ways that I feel my intuition is, has grown is by trusting it. The more that I trust mm-hmm. it, the more that that information can come to me and I can be in that, that river, that ocean or stream of the imaginal or intuitive realm. Yeah, I think you're, what you're saying as I hear is like when you, when you know something, don't let the other parts of your mind doubt your knowing. Yeah. So that's the trust you're talking about. So when you know it, you know it. And I think there's a resonance that even remote viewers or psychics start to develop in knowing, in knowing. And like, you know, a really good psychic will not interpret, oh, they, they might say, I see this for you. So that means that don't interpret things based on your own symbolic code. Because that's never true. As soon as you start interpreting your knowing, then you're off the target. This is also part of remote viewing is when you're 
interpreting what is coming to you and you're knowing, you're usually thinking and in your left brain. So yeah, you're right. Trusting, it's developing a sense that what you know, you know. So yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. That's yeah. part of this thesis that we are developing here. Alan, since I'm with you and you have written an anthology on contacting aliens, how does the UAPs and extraterrestrials fit into this conversation of the imaginal cognition? I think they fit in more than most people think. I think the reason these things come in and out of our realm is because, in a sense, they're more in this our more, let's say, out of this fabricated world of time and space and illusion that we're living in. They're more, and they, they're in this other realm, the imaginal, which is real, but they're also physical, of course, but they're in this realm of advanced conscious awareness, this advanced application of consciousness that we are heading into as, let's say, fifth dimensional beings. So it's very much exactly a part of this they exist if i can like take a chance of saying that i don't know for sure in this imaginal world beyond this physical world people can't understand how they come in and out and disappear because they have maybe even a technology that amplifies the application of the imaginal or they're in this super sensible realm where they are for the most part i'm sure there's more than one um they are understanding the applications of consciousness in very super sophisticated ways that we're just beginning to suspicion. So this is the beginning of conversation of making contact. And I think I'll put some of this into my next book, Beyond Contact, which, um, which starts to open the doors of this interface of realities it's not so much other beings but realities is what you know you know in a way um i think this whole psychedelic revolution happened in the 60s and of course it was influenced by consciousness of the of the hindus coming here in the 1890s but we are learning the multiplicity of consciousness applications and yes hallucinogens were part of that and then we're beyond that now. I don't think we need hallucinogens to have the visionaries of a new age because the doors are already open, but the it's doors to the imaginal realms, which do signify where we can be beyond space and time everywhere, all the time, all at once. So this is the excitement about the work we're trying to create open doorways of possibilities people start to develop an awareness of a facility that's always been with us it's it's been the perennial philosophy as you said the other day it is that it is now it's always been available to everyone but you know i think we can create a culture of peace uh, a culture of uh, maybe even free energy you know imagine all the people living for today John Lennon said, you know, I think I'm a utopian isn't and uh, believe you, you too, right? So you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one, right? Yeah, here we are together. <laughs> Why not go with the one that gives us the most hope? And, you know, 
my favorite, one of my favorite movies is The Life of Pi, when the guy, did you see that movie? And, and it's actually better in the book when he comes and lands and he tells the people, well, where you've been. He says, well, I was on this boat with a tiger for, you know, months at sea. And they said, well, we don't believe that. And he said, okay, I'll tell you another story. And tell the story without the tiger. And he says, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the story with the tiger? Or with the <laughs> and so I prefer the story with the excitement that anything is possible, that, you know, hope and possibility and untold realities lie ahead of us that are full of adventure mm-hmm. and the unknown. There's nothing to fear about the unknown because what you fear about the unknown is always only a projection of the known. The imaginal is opening its doorways to humanity and can we step through and have an adventure of, of untold possibilities? This is what I feel awaits us if we can just take a few steps forward into imagine. Yes. Very beautiful, Alan. Thank you so much for being with me today and helping all of us recognize that we have a lot of potential within us and we have a reality that we can always touch and connect with and really create our own reality. Yes, and have one be created for us that's even more amazing than the ones that we project as possibility. All we have to do is stay open to the flow, the infinite flow of, of consciousness. It's a flow, a stream of consciousness. It's flowing through us. If we can stay open to what would be our maximum potential take us into unknown lands of possibility, unknown, to set your compass for a destination and will unfold. Yeah. Alan, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Emmy. I always enjoy just kind of playing. Of course, it's just my own theories, and if it helps people, I think it's fun to talk about, and there's a lot more work if consciousness is the ground of all being, that's a starting place, but it's not an ending point. You know, that's the beginning of the journey into new realities. It's just naming my YouTube channel, New Realities. <laughs> yes, and I look forward to more conversations with you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? <laughs>